A watch ticked on a dead man's wrist. Another man, looking at the body, joked, I guess it sure does take a licking, but keep on ticking. Humor was critical in the situation. The men and women said at the time that a joke, no matter how bad, helped break the tension of their overwhelming task. The recovery of hundreds of dead U.S. citizens from a sweltering Guyanese jungle. It may seem heartless or ghoulish to joke as hundreds lay dead before you, but facing the largest loss of civilian American lives pre-9-11, humor was just one form of self-preservation. Today, on Dead to Me, I talk about Jonestown, the recovery effort, and the first U.S. study of PTSD. So I assume everyone knows about Jim Jones. He was born and raised in Indiana. He became a popular Pentecostal preacher in the 1960s, and he used a gospel of social justice and inclusion to attract followers. Eventually, about 100 or so followers and Jones moved out west and settled eventually in San Francisco, and they founded the People's Temple. And the congregation that was once only about 100 people ballooned to over 1,000. So Jones was a sideshow act, and he staged fake faith healings to draw more and more people into the church. He was fueled by paranoia that in turn was fueled by his increasing dependency on prescription drugs. The fake faith healings drew more people into his church, and it helped him consolidate his power with only a small trusted circle of faithful. He even began referring to himself as God. But in 1977, a damning article about the abuses within the temple was about to break. And so Jones and a group of his followers fled to some land that the temple had previously purchased in Guyana, South America. So a side note about that article. It was written by Marshall Kilduff and Phil Tracy, and it published in the August 1st, 1977 edition of New West Magazine, based out of California. And honestly, this piece of investigative writing is incredible. And personally, as a journalist, it reminds me why supporting local journalism is so important. But I just want to read the closing paragraph because it is striking, given what we know now. The story of Jim Jones and his people's temple is not over. In fact, it has only begun to be told. If there's any solace to be gained from the tale of exploitation and human foible told by the former temple members in these pages, it is that even such a power as Jim Jones cannot always contain his followers. Those who left had nowhere to go, and yet every reason to fear pursuit. Yet they persevered. If Jones is ever to be stripped of his power, it will not be because of a vendetta or persecution, but rather because those of courage, these people stepped up, came forward, and spoke out. This is a Channel 7 News Scene special report with our continuing coverage of the People's Temple story and the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. Good evening. Here's what's happening. We're interrupting our special broadcasting to bring you this special report. I also have to warn you as we begin this special report that what you're about to see almost defies description, and some of you may not want to watch it. As soon as these pictures 
from Jonestown cleared our newsroom. Everybody, even a lot of hardened news people, reacted in horror and disbelief. On November 18, 1978, willingly or unwillingly, the followers drank cyanide-laced fruit punch. Over 300 children remained to drink it. Those who didn't want to join Jones' so-called revolutionary suicide were injected with poison. And others who tried to run for the surrounding jungle were shot by one of Jones' armed guards. All told, 918 people died that day. The U.S. tried to have the bodies interred on site, but Guyana didn't want any part of it. Families of the dead wanted their loved ones returned home. The U.S. military was the only organization able to handle a mass casualty recovery effort, and eventually Dover Air Force Base in Delaware was assigned receipt of the dead. What happened there in the aftermath would become one of the first records of how deeply first responders can be affected by the trauma to which their jobs expose them. Jonestown was remote, so they had to fly back and forth from Guyana's capital. U.S. military helicopters were loaded with waterproof canvas body bags and these big ass coffin-like metal transport containers, and they shuttled the dead and the recovery workers back and forth between Guyana's capital and Jonestown. Recovery workers would later report the staggering number of children they saw was what was most disturbing to them. Society's understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder was limited in 1978, and it was almost exclusively associated with wartime experiences, falling under an umbrella of what was often referred to as shell shock. And even less was known about the impact a mass casualty recovery mission would have on first responders. And, I mean, there were a few studies that were done by the military before then on nurses, as an example. But Jonestown was different. Uh, it involved the death of civilians. It wasn't a battlefield. And it demanded the involvement of a cross-section of workers, from doctors to pathologists to typists and the guys who cleaned out the transport containers back at Dover Air Force Base. And when the first C-141 touched down at Dover on November 23, 1978, it carried the remains of only 40 U.S. civilians. The magnitude of the situation was still unknown and grossly underestimated. So was the emotional impact it would have on those left to deal with it. When I approached an editor that I worked with at Time Magazine about reporting on Jonestown, the different way that I wanted to look into it was was through this study that I found online that was conducted after people came back from recovering bodies. And one of the people that I spoke with for the article that eventually ran, was it two years ago now, I think was the 40th anniversary, was Patricia Edwards. And she had only worked at Dover for seven years as a civil employee, where she still is today. But back then, she was working in the Airmen and Family Readiness Center. And her job was to manage logistics. Patricia didn't want to be recorded, and that's totally understandable. But she was really generous with her time. And she told me that it was her job to recruit individuals that would work in the mortuary environment. 
and to make sure that there was enough staff and administrators to handle the Jonestown situation, is what she said. And we talked a little bit about Jonestown and, and what we remember, and I was six, seven, seven years old. But I do remember uh, grainy aerial footage from Jonestown on the evening news. And so we were talking about that sort of grainy footage that we re we both remembered. She told me that she found out about Jonestown like everybody else did back then, and it was it was through the media, and it was from the reports that she and her colleagues saw that they found out just how much of a job that they would have to do, and they would have to do it very quickly. And she told me that what would normally take about two to three weeks had to be done in one week. And so I asked her what, what needed to be done because I couldn't even grasp what needed to be done. She told me that the base would need more people first and foremost, and not just trained mortuary staff, but ancillary support staff. Tents were gonna be needed to put be pitched up for food service workers, administrative staff, and a legion of typewriters. And she, went out of her way to remind me that this is before computers. So every request that came through Dover, everything had to be typed up. Every person coming onto the base had to be processed and credentialed individually. And basically she said that she had to help construct a base within the base. So eventually the Air Force did this study on the impact um, the recovery effort had on personnel, and it was military and civilian alike. And it was titled, Emotional Effects on U.S. Air Force Personnel of Recovering and Identifying Victims from Jonestown, Guyana. So this is from the upfront. This study concerns information gathered by sending a questionnaire to Air Force personnel who had been involved with recovering, transporting, handling and identifying bodies of men, women, and children who died at Jonestown. The U.S. Air Force has long been concerned with recovering, stabilizing, and evacuating victims of natural and man-made disasters. U.S. Air Force personnel have responded to earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, flood, aircraft accidents, and combat situations. While preparing a lecture on the psychological effects of disasters on the victims, we became aware of the paucity of information about emotional effects on the rescue workers, particularly those from outside the stricken area who would otherwise not have been involved at all. An extensive review of the medical literature on disaster response, as well as a summary review of the more extensive sociological literature on this subject, yielded little information concerning the emotional effects seen in rescuers of live victims, and almost nothing about the effects of recovering and identifying the dead. So basically, nothing really existed before this. So one of the reasons that Dover was chosen, according to this document, was that Dover had previously provided recovery services for several hundred victims in the collision of two 747 jetliners on the runway at Tenerife in the Canary Islands. So in general, the air crew members who transported the remains were not volunteers, but the work of moving the remains, cleaning the containers, 
and performing the identification process was generally performed by volunteers who were allowed to stop whenever they felt they had had enough. The recovery phase took about five days and the identification process continued for about a month. And the study was really simple because there were no real analogs to build from. And there was a dearth of information on emotional impact on recovery workers or what would become known as secondary disaster victims. So if you think about secondary disaster victims, we think about first responders and, and how that idea has changed since the days of looking at PTSD or secondary trauma as something that only occurs in wartime. I mean, we think about 9-11 or even now's, you know, today's COVID-19 response and what healthcare workers are being faced with. But there was none of that back then. So the study now exists today on the Defense Technical Information Center website. And I will post a link because it's really worthwhile to look through there. The study's finding, based on the recovery efforts at Jonestown and Dover, lives on in articles and disaster recovery textbooks and military training guides. In the preface of the study, the authors say, quote, it is difficult to convey to someone what a weak and a tropical environment can do to a dead human body. And the conditions at Jonestown were compounded by rain and staggering humidity. Bodies bloat and change color and are infested with insects. Above all, the authors write, the overpowering and unforgettable odor of just one body are beyond imagination. The study first just asked basic age, race, marital status, questions and whether or not a person was um, in the military or was a civilian like Patricia Edwards. The respondents were asked if they had any exposure to human remains. The immediate emotional impact is what you would imagine. In this study, there were places for excerpts from interviews with the respondents and one, one person responded, quote, Seeing three or four babies per ba body bag kept workers up all night. Some, the study reported, were angry that the military was involved in recovering the, quote, fanatics at all. One dude even reported personal growth from the experience that it forced him to realize that as a fellow human being, you got to, quote, give a damn. So by April of 1979... More than 300 bodies of those followers had been claimed by family members. But at Dover Air Force Base, over 500 remained unclaimed, and over 200 were decomposed past the point of identification. Many relatives couldn't afford the military transport fees of nearly $500 for family to bring home a loved one for a private burial. And... Even if they could have, no cemetery wanted the remains. Communities didn't want to be home to pilgrimage sites for Jones' remaining U.S. followers, and there were remaining followers, for sure. They didn't want unnecessary attention, unwanted attention, and people coming into their towns. Eventually, a cemetery in Oakland, across the bay from the temple's former home in San Francisco, 
agreed to inter the remains of hundreds of the Jonestown dead. So 40 years on, there's a memorial to the victims of Jonestown in Oakland, and there's commemorative events that are scheduled yearly where survivors and family can gather to mourn the loss of their loved ones because the more that's understood about the people of Jonestown, uh, the more we understand that they were, they were overwhelmingly victims. But at Dover, almost everything has changed. And the only remaining building, I was told, from the Jonestown time period is that initial hangar, 1301. It is now the Air Mobility and Command Museum, and it's dedicated to the history of airlifts and air refueling, and it's actually kind of cool. But ultimately, it's the place where old airplanes get to go if they're lucky. And Patricia Edwards is still there, and she's now assisting military families through Dover's Readiness and Resilience Program. But the thing is, is that in talking to her, she told me that, that Jonestown is never far away. And it's not just because it's the place where she works. It's because the community was affected. Dover was affected. I mean, you know, she asked me to think about it and, and think about the military base and where it was located in Dover. And I looked at a map and the surrounding areas is quite populated she's like you know that smell didn't stay on the base and that the community really rose to the occasion um, and even though some people didn't agree with what the military was undertaking or that it was happening on their back doorstep they showed up because that was their job because it's a decent thing to do you know she said the experience of dealing with the bodies that were shared by people working at the base, whether in the mortuary or in the tent city that was, had created an extended family, she told me, and that feeling endures. But the one thing that she said, the one inescapable thing she told me is, quote, the stench. I will never forget the stench, end quote. So I just wanted to make a few notes here about my sources. The story that I wrote for Time Magazine involved my own personal reporting. So talking to Patricia Edwards and some of the guys at, at Dover, and they were great. There's databases online. I will post links to that in the show notes. Also, the Defense Technical Information Center website. I will also post the link to the archival KGO news scene 1978 report, which was available via Creative Commons. So thanks for listening.